Today's guest is a performance-driven business strategist and influential change agent for over 20 years of proven accomplishments. Specializing in internal audit, fraud audit, and investigations, and corporate accounting, our guest has worked with familiar companies, ConocoPhillips, Barclays Capital, Costco, and more. I'd like to welcome the founder and managing partner of Verisi, Mary Breslin. Hi, Mary. It's great to have you on today. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm a pleasure to be here. Let's take a few minutes and can you tell our audience your story and a little bit about your background? Sure. So I pretty much am a career internal auditor. Um, I did spend a little bit of time in accounting. I have multiple accounting degrees, but I am really what you consider a lifetime auditor. I've worked in some really interesting companies, which actually got me a ton of fraud experience. I worked in oil and gas. I worked in mining. Um, I worked in banking. There tends to be a lot of fraud and corruption in those industries. So I got a lot of experience. And um, ultimately, I was a chief audit executive for a couple of global publicly traded companies. And I got to be either involved in or in charge of fraud investigations um, in multiple organizations. And when I left my last chief, when I left my last chief auditor role, um, I wanted to do something independent. So I started the firm Verisy with another partner of mine, and I did it based on what I perceived as a need in the internal audit space for newer, edgier, more modernized, continuing education and professional development. I felt that the space really lacked really engaging and fun training. And also there was a lack of focus on teaching internal auditors on how to fight fraud. So I was kind of inspired by all of those things to to start Verisi with a partner of mine who happened to be an expert in data analytics. I also am what you call an early adopter of data analytics. Um, I, that has really helped my fraud um, career with the analytics. So the two of us started this and lo and behold, after a few years, um, we actually moved into the consulting space and started doing consulting work in both the audit and the fraud and some compliance uh, spaces. So that was kind of the, the, the short of the evolution there. That's great. So you kind of touched on your company, Verisi. Um, do you want to share a little bit what you guys focus on and kind of what your unique specializations are? Yeah, I would say we're like all things internal audit. We do <laughs> two halves of the business. One half does consulting, so we are a service provider for internal audit you know, services. We also go in and do uh, help organizations improve their audit functions. Uh, I've served as an interim, and so have some of our other folks. As interim chief auditors, will organizations look for uh, a permanent position? Um, we do like quality assurance for groups, but my passion is really the, the training, the continuing education, professional mm -hmm. development side of the business. That's what I'm most proud of. Um, we focus on translating everything to a, the internal audit world, really. So all of the fraud classes are meant to be taught to internal auditors. You know, project management classes are all meant to be taught to people running audits. So that's kind of um, my, my lane is internal audit, and I stick to it. 
But, um, you know, I guess my claim to fame is how many fraud cases I've done. So I do spend a lot of time on educating internal auditors on how to fight fraud within their organizations, all the way from just embedding it in their, you know, regular audit processes to being involved in the actual investigations and everything in between. That sounds fun. That sounds fun. Definitely a different perspective um, teaching versus, you know, always being a consultant. So you got it, you kind of got the mix of both. So what's one thing you wish you had known when you began your career? You know, I think the one thing that I wish I had known would be to really just embrace who I am. I very fortunately had a lot of really great mentors, but they were all men. Mm. And they gave me advice based on what worked for them, which meant I spent years like suppressing my own natural characteristics and tendencies mm. as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I was fairly well into my career that I realized I should just take the essence of what they were saying, not mm -hmm. the literal, and use that alongside my natural characteristics. So I wish somebody had told me that in the beginning. Okay, great. Great. That sounds interesting. You're right, because it is different. Um, mm -hmm. you know, being the first or being the initial or being the only woman. Um, but, I'm, <laughs> but I'm sure they gave you great advice and you made it your own. And, Eventually uh, I learned how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how do you conduct a fraud investigation um, in your experience? What's your way of doing things? So for me, I think my superpower, and this actually ties into the last question, I think my superpower mm -hmm. is being a woman. Um, I do a tremendous amount of research on anybody I'm going to be speaking to. So anybody who's going to be interviewed, if time allows, and you know it depends mm -hmm. on the, the pace at which the investigation has to happen, I will research in depth all of the witnesses and certainly anybody that might be a, a suspect. Because when I get into the room and I can talk to them, it's much easier, I feel, for me as a woman, to tap into empathy and kind of mm -hmm. use that as a tool to get them to open up to me. Um, the more I know about them, the research, and the more I just be my natural empathetic female self, I find that that's what, that's what helps the most. So that's kind of my approach. And then I'm completely married to data analytics. So two sides of the coin, <laughs> highly technical, and then the, the, uh, yes. the soft skills, right? Yes, that's a good mixture. Um, I like that empathy. It really, you know, it really works to get into you know, kind of their motives and what they were thinking yeah. and really understanding the situation. The so, more you know, I know about them, the more I know mm -hmm. about their background, their history, their mm -hmm. life, the more I can come up with some theories as to how they rationalized what they did. Right. And that's where I'm going to tap into the empathy piece. Oh, that's great. And what specific skills do you think an analyst or an investigator should have to help them um, do their job better? Well, I think first and foremost, foremost, you have to be bold. You got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You're in uncomfortable situations all the time. You have to ask really difficult questions frequently. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you have to have confidence and beyond that, be okay with regularly being uncomfortable. But I also think, you know, empathy, what I already said. And then for me, I'm going to keep saying data analytics has been like that's that I owe most of my success in the fraud world, either through detecting or um, proving quantifying to mm -hmm. data analytics. Oh, that's great. 
And um, you mentioned data, data analytics, and, and these types of investigations, there's a lot of data to go through. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> where do you think there's a way to reduce the time spent required to conduct you know, these fraud investigations? Yeah. That's a tough one because you can do a fraud investigation in a couple hours or you could have a couple years, right? And there's everything in between. So it really depends on the what the investigation really entails like how massive it is but certainly if there's if there's a requirement to sort through data data analytics even today we're using artificial intelligence mm -hmm. those things are going to really help and expedite and the other thing that i've learned in the last several big cases that i've done is using artificial intelligence to protect chain of custody having a hands-off approach to the data analysis and stuff and letting the systems do the work, letting bots move everything around prevents human error. And, you know, you can record those things. And I think that, that for me, expedites the, the post period mm -hmm. where you have that review from, you know, the forensic folks and the, the experts at the authority level or at the insurance level, depending on what route you're going. They always review all of the work that you did. That tends to expedite that piece quite a bit, um, mm -hmm. but that's a hard one to answer just because every case is so unique. So different, yeah. And you know, you mentioned technology. So, what are the challenges of dealing with um, digital data when it comes to you know these fraud investigations? So, digital data is a problem. I'm not going to lie. In the remote world, everybody working virtually has gotten it worse. Everybody who's involved in any kind of remote investigation, even going back to my home base, like the auditors and the compliance folks, you have to now become an IT person as well. You mm -hmm. cannot just be a generalist. You have to understand things like metadata. I can change any document in the world to say anything I want it to say. And if you don't know how to go look at metadata, you're mm -hmm. not gonna realize that it was changed because it's gonna be flawless in its presentation. Mm -hmm. And now that we're relying on electronic back and forth, I think that that has become even more crucial in investigations and in ensuring you are looking at what you think you're looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what is one thing you would want to change about the fraud investigation industry if you had all the resources in the world? We should, the good guys should get paid more. <laughs> That's a good one. The reason the fraudsters do what they do is for the money, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> Um, I, you know what I would probably change if I had all the resources in the world is I would probably train everyone. Mm. You know, 95% of all the people in the world in every organization are just not going to do it. They're not going to commit fraud. They're just not going right. to do it. If we could train every single person that is one of those good people, that 95% on how to fight fraud. I mean, I, I was on Nextdoor, the Nextdoor app, looking at all the bad advice that people were giving each other over how to protect themselves from phishing. Like phishing attacks, people just don't have the knowledge, whether it's within the organization or personally. If there was unlimited resources, I would have everybody in the world get fraud awareness training. That's a good one because I think people just need to know, you know, yeah. just need to know, mm -hmm. especially some, even email. There's, you know, yeah. some people just mm -hmm. need to know what not to click and what not to answer and things like that. Um, what is the most interesting case so far? And what is the biggest takeaways that you can share with our listeners? 
I have many. So, you know, I think I'm going to, most interesting, I could tell you about car chases and FBI raids and death threats and being protected by Navy SEALs. And that's all very cool, right? Uh, Not at the time, but now in hindsight. But I think I'm going to focus on the second part, which is the takeaways, because I know your audience Mm -hmm. is people that are coming up um, in the industry. And the takeaways are this. Every fraud case is unique and every experience is going to be different. And there's going to be a lot of surprises along the way. And you're going to lose some. I had a case in Peru, which was ironclad. It was absolutely ironclad. Um, and it had a lot of intrigue and there was collusion. And um, to the point where, very simply, it was an inventory theft scheme. And they were concealing it by capitalizing the stolen wares. And they had actually gone and built, physically built a store <laughs> to sell the stuff they were stealing from us. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was in mining, so it was all like mining equipment. And they went and they built a store on, an, on a competitor's mine site and were selling oh. our goods at a discounted price. Wow. So we were getting hit twice, right? We were getting hit by yeah. the actual theft. And then they were giving our competitor an advantage over us. So that was fabulous. But the woman who was concealing the fraud was the accountant. She was one of the head accountants in the location. And um, throughout the, or- the, the investigation, we could find no evidence of her benefiting. And this was about a $10 million fraud. So it was a fairly substantial fraud. Yeah. People were getting big chunks of money out of this. Um, we could not find that she had benefited even a single cent. And it came out through the interviews, the empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Using my empathy. Yeah. That she had kind of gotten lured into covering up the fraud for the general, um, the, the, the general manager who was in charge of the site because she was in love with him. They didn't actually have an affair. They were both married to other people. There, was, there had never been a physical affair between them. But she was puppy dog love for years for this guy. And he knew it. And he, he took advantage of that and got her to, yeah. So she actually ended up getting indicted too. Even though we could find no, and we hired Crawl to come in and like tear her life apart and see, nope, she told me she didn't get anything and I believed her at the time, but then we went the extra length and looked for something, found nothing. Um, So she put herself at tremendous risk for no benefit just for the attention of this man, which to me was an unbelievable thing. You know, there was a lot of lessons learned, a lot of red flags in hindsight uh, that we we took away from that. I remember sitting down with a witness who was furious at what was happening. He was the head of maintenance, and the money that they were using to capitalize was coming out of budgets that were meant to be used to improve drill rigs. And the drill rigs were breaking down, and he was having to, like, fix them like MacGyver with, like, gum and string, you know, (laughs) duct tape. And he thought he worked for, like, the most irresponsible, cheapest company in the world that we would put people's lives at risk. Mining is extremely dangerous. Dangerous. um, And not give him money to repair the rigs. And I was like, I can't believe, you know, that this that you felt this way. Why didn't you call the whistleblower hotline? And he said he did. And this was a big lesson learned for me. He had called three separate times 
and he needed to report in Spanish and he was put on hold until they could get a native Spanish speaker on the phone. And we had hired one of those big third parties because we were a huge global company. We needed like 20 languages and they left him on hold for a half hour each time. And he finally hung up and he believed that he was being put on hold because we really weren't interested in, in people reporting in. So that was a huge like eye opener for me. And now I know when I preach to everybody that will listen to me, when you test your hotline, you have to test all the languages. Uh-huh. You have to test all of the wait times. Um, you know, it had never crossed our mind that that something like that would happen. Never and here's the sad, here's the sad takeaway. I worked for a couple of years, about two and a half years with the prosecutor's office. And I had my, it takes a village to do these cases, right? I had my own in-house general counsel, you know, multiple members of our general counsel working with us. Um, you know, I was the expert witness, but I had my technical accountants, my forensic accountants. Then I had my court appointed forensic accountants and my court appointed interpreter. And the week of the trial, the week that it was meant to start, we were scheduled to spend like three days with the prosecutor. He was going to run me through the paces, right? Make sure I was, you know, ready to to sit in the box and and be asked all the horrible questions that I was, you know, well, people try and tell you you don't have the credentials to do the work you did and all that good stuff because those are fun times. Oh, that's another lesson (laughs) alert, kids. When you get to the box, when you become an expert witness, the first like couple hours is all about them trying to prove that you're not an expert and you should not So be prepared for that. <laughs> oh, geez. But he made, the prosecutor made us wait. We got there on a Monday and we were supposed to start with him at 8 a.m. And we were still waiting for him by lunch. And you, you're kind of like, you know, who knows what's going on in a prosecutor's office. Yeah. So we were patient and he finally, and there was like six of us there to do this. He finally shows up and says, and we're sitting in like a foyer, like on a wooden bench, like all lined up, like my team and I, and he comes in and I'm sitting directly next to my court appointed interpreter who I've spent quite a bit of time with at this point. It's been years we've been meeting and stuff. And um, he says, we are going to dismiss the case. And I'm like, what? And he says, yes, you can't be an expert witness because you are not uh, a native uh, uh, Spanish speaker with the native business level Spanish that we need to present this case. And he says this to me as I'm sitting next to my court appointed interpreter. Mm -hmm. So she's like, what Mm -hmm. the? (laughs) And, uh, And he's very gruff and he basically lets us out. Later, um, it came out that he had been waiting for the bribe to process through his bank. So uh, the case never did go back to court, but he was was punished. I think he lost his license, but uh, we never did make it back to court. So those seven folks that had been indicted ultimately did not have any penalties in the end. So the the moral of the story is, you know, it's (laughs) being a fraud investigator is kind of like being a heavy hitter. Like you're going to get a lot of at bats. And your batting average, if you're, you're going to get a lot of at-bats and your batting average, if you're excellent, is still going to be like 300%, you know, <laughs> you know or 30%, I should say, right? You know, um, you think about that. That's what, you know, a good batting average is like 330. And uh, that's kind of where we average is like are in the fraud world. Now, but those numbers are a little bit heavier towards the wind side. 
travel and they're a little bit heavier towards the wind side, but are the authorities anyway. They're based on those smaller cases, right? right? The fence stuff internally where it's completely at our disposal. Um, Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have when literally you have like a hundred of these stories, sadly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just so hard to think you, you know, you, you go in as an investigator, put in all the work, all the resources, yep. and it's a, such a small group of people that commit the fraud, but so many more like victims, yep. people who are affected or yep. could have been potentially at risk, right? Their lives. Um, and everything so it's really um, yeah it's tough work but I'm sure it's rewarding um, for yeah. some cases for most cases but you know it, it, yeah. it is rewarding most of the time um, there's great satisfaction <laughs> in figuring yeah. it out I think for me um, figuring it out is like the first hump to get over yeah. Proving it is the next bigger hump right. to get over, right? Um, many, you'll talk to many fraud examiners who will say, mm -hmm. you yeah. knew it happened. Being able to prove oh, it, yeah. though, wasn't as easy. I had one, I'll tell you one really quick, fun little story I had. It's kind of the opposite end. I had, a, I had the only database fraud I've ever had in my career where, you know, mm -hmm. a DBA programmer went in and he created a code. He used a bot, actually rewrote over all of the financials behind the scenes at a transactional level. So he was one of the founders of the company. So he and this other founder could get tens of millions of dollars is the bottom line there. Um, and it was very complicated because it was both a huge forensic accounting side to the case and what actually mm -hmm. happened to the financials with what he did with this bot. And then there was this technology thing where he used artificial intelligence and in a database. And we had them... I mean, we proved it out completely. KPMG Forensic came in behind us, vetted all of our work, did the red team thing, vetted all the work, 100% agreed with us. We all went to the prosecutor's office. Prosecutor said, there's no way I can ever prosecute this. Uh, and even though it was about a $20 million fraud, he's like, there's no way I will be able to explain this to a judge, never mind a jury. He's like, it's too complicated. He's like, but this is what we're going to do. He's like, these guys don't know that. He's like, let's put out warrants for their arrest. Let's get them in here. Mm -hmm. Let's scare that out of them. And let's get the money back yeah. and get them to plea to something lesser. And that's exactly what he did. He got arrested them, got them in there, got them to plea. We got them all the money back. We got all the money back. And um, yeah, but they got like essentially a misdemeanor on their record. So that's the other end. So there's there's great yeah. prosecutors out there too, is my point. So there's you're gonna you end yeah. up with both ends of the spectrum. Um, there's some cases out there specifically like the Pandora Papers, right? Um, tied to alleged money laundering by you know these political figures and you know celebrities. Um, what role could accountants or investigators or fraud examiners have in limiting these future occurrences? Do you think? This is a tough one because I, it, it, I really do think the root cause is the complexity of the laws. I think that especially in our society, our systems are so bizarrely complex that it creates the opportunity for these types of things to occur. Um, and as far as the, the accountants and the, the investigators, you've got two buckets here. Some of the accountants are the problem. 
right? Yeah. So <laughs> they're not going to help. Right? They're the ones that are facilitating these things illegally for their clients for return, like for the money they're getting paid to do it. Um, as far as investigators, the the only way for us to really help is to just very, very tenaciously go after these folks. Um, white collar crime for too long has resulted in no penalty or very little penalty to people too often. And it's, it's mm -hmm. for a long time crime paid, right? And so I think at least white collar crime paid. I think that we have to go after them and there have to be serious consequences and that's going to help deter it more than anything. And at some point we have to fix our systems, our accounting, our legal systems, our tax systems so that they're not so complicated and don't provide such a great right. opportunity for manipulation. And so in that fraud investigation sphere, you know, hiding hidden assets and tax fraud and um, embezzlement are kind of the most sought after topics we hear about in fraud. Um, how do you think technology plays a part in that process? Oh, I would, I'm going to go right back to what, what I already said, like a broken record. Like, I think that you fight, you fight technology issues mm -hmm. with technology, right? Um, so it's all, it's going to be about data analytics and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And as we grow more and more advanced in those things and we learn how to control them, right? Controlling machine learning is challenging you know artificial intelligence is an amazing like unbelievable tool that it, it, there's no limits to what it, the potential of what it can do but we have to harness the power of it without it damaging everything and we're still figuring that out um but i do think that that's going to be how we're going to fight this stuff um down the road i think that's the direction <laughs> everything's going in. and a lot of us have just started in our fraud investment investigation career. Um, any tips um, on how to get um, used to, you know, recognizing red flags and fraud and murder cases? Yeah, I think you got to understand yourself as a person, right? So 60 to 70 percent of our thought process is subconscious. It's not what you're actively thinking. And as a result, your brain is constantly working to make sense of things. And so you may see something that's a red flag and your brain comes up with a very viable excuse to why it's okay. And that happens even in fraud fighters. It still happens to me this day. I know how to recognize it though. I look at something and I'm like, oh, well maybe it's X. And then I go, wait a second, Mary, <laughs> what, what actually else could it be? Because we have all of these uh, cognitive biases that are always at play. There's our experience, right? When you're fighting fraud, it's almost a certainty that you're looking at something you probably haven't experienced before in your career when you're at the start of your career. So your brain is working overtime to try and make sense of it based on what you already know, what you've already experienced. And even seasoned fraud fighters will miss things because of that, what's going on in their subconscious, right? So knowing that that's happening is, is important because then you can start to break down what might be happening subconsciously. Okay, why might why am I assuming that, you know, the manager was told it was okay to do this, right? And that's when you start to realize, hey, what I'm seeing truly is a red flag. You don't want to get in your own way mm -hmm. from seeing the red flags. I think that's the hardest thing at the beginning. 
Good advice. And what would, and what advice would you give other professionals just entering this domain? Be curious and be bold. You have to be both, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can't. You can't be successful as a fraud examiner without both curiosity and the ability to be bold, right? Have mm -hmm. be willing to be uncomfortable often, right? As you develop your skill, as you each, every single fraud case I get into, I get uncomfortable because I have to ask people really awful <laughs> questions. Yeah. That's going to make them really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And because I am an empathetic person, whether they're the suspect or just witnesses, I know I'm making them uncomfortable with, those questions and so you can't skirt the hard questions because they're uncomfortable so you got to be bold and you got to be curious that is great advice because you're there to ask the questions right and to really dig and find out the truth or you know kind of discover um, what really went on so um, yeah yeah so um, thank you so we, much. Uh, I'm going to make one more comment on yeah. that. And you got to, you have to, everybody needs to know at the beginning of their career that human beings, the average human being, our default mode is to want to like the person we're meeting or interacting mm -hmm. with and we want to believe what they're telling us. That's our natural default mode, mm -hmm. right? So we have to understand that that's going on and get past that. That's where being skeptical comes in, right? Like, <laughs> trust but verify. Exactly, exactly, because you, no one wants to think that this person in front of you did these awful things mm -hmm. that you're trying to prove, but in reality, not always the case. So We almost always like the fraudster. I mean, that's another thing to, to, to keep in mind. You know, I've interviewed hundreds, maybe even a thousand people in fraud cases in my career, and I can probably count on one time how many times or count on one hand, excuse me, how many times the fraudster was somebody nobody liked. Mm. You know, it's almost always the person, everybody, no way, not Charlie, we love Charlie, you know. It's almost always the person. So fraud examiners, when you're at the beginning of your career, you gotta understand that too. They're gonna be likable, and they're gonna be charming, and they're gonna be smart. They're not gonna be wearing like, you know, <laughs> the collar pulled up to here and doing this stuff in a dark alley. No, they're gonna be the person who's bringing coffee in for everybody. Oh man, yeah. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Gotta prepare yourself for that. So, thank you so much. You had some exciting stories. Can't wait to hear more about these <laughs> Navy SEALs. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that was fun yeah i'm sure it was at the time <laughs> all right um all right so great thank you so much we are uh, so happy to have you on thank you for having me